Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the first in a new series of podcasts from the Investors Chronicle. My name is Alex Newman, an associate editor at the magazine, and I'll be your host for what is a slightly different format to the episodes that normally appear in your podcast feed. Its main difference, other than being recorded monthly, is that the questions aren't being fielded by a commentator or fund manager, but by someone who has lived and breathed investing on their own account for more than six decades. As we often write in the magazine, nothing beats skin in the game, and Lord Lee of Trafford has been in the game more than almost anyone actively investing in the UK today. John, as I'll call him, is a former MP, Minister and High Sheriff of Manchester, and now a serving member in the House of Lords. And he's probably the UK's best-known self-directed investor. In 2003, he disclosed that the value of his ISA portfolio had then reached £1 million, becoming the first retail investor to reach that landmark. And he has documented his investing life in hundreds of articles for the Financial Times and in a book, How to Make a Million Slowly. So the plan for this series, which we've called Lee and the IC, is that it will be an extended conversation with John, drawing on his decades of practical and personal experience as an investor. We'll discuss his thoughts on various UK companies and market trends, his investing principles, and I hope his take on some bigger topics too. I should add at this point that though we will be talking about individual stocks and John's portfolio in detail, this podcast is purely for educational purposes and nothing in it should be taken as financial advice or recommendations to buy or sell shares. Finally, I also hope that it can serve as a source of optimism and a bit of an antidote to the, the, the narrative of UK market decline. Not, I should add, because this isn't a real concern, um, it is, but because this often obscures the fact that there are lots of great homegrown UK listed companies out there to talk about, and that while improvements to markets and business is something we can all hope and agitate for, what matters to investors is navigating the here and now. So speaking of the here and now, let's get to it. John, a very warm welcome to you today uh, in the studio. How are you? Thank you, Alex. Absolutely fine. Looking forward to the first, hopefully, of many, uh, uh, many similar uh, talks. I'm really excited too. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So this week, without further ado, we're going to be discussing dividends, the resilience of the city, and a few smaller holdings in your portfolio. But um. I want to start with with one of the companies which I understand is now one of your largest positions, and that's the, the FTSE 100 asset manager, come life insurer, M&G, which, as it so happens, just published interim results for the half year to June 2023. John, could you sort of briefly sketch out for me the, the M&G backstory and also your story with M&G, how you came to be invested in the company? Hmm. Well, M&G, of course, has been a, a household name, a major name in, in fund management for years and years. What, three or four years ago, maybe, maybe even a little longer, it was spun off by the Pru um, and came to the market as a standalone separate entity. I have to say, uh, no one was quite sure what it was, how to describe it, really, because it was a mix, uh, and it still is a mix in a way, uh, of uh, wealth manager and annuity holder. And um, it came to the market, uh, and really, I think it would be fair to say that that it's never really uh, become a favourite in investors' eyes. I described it uh, as a little bit of a, a stranded whale in in an odd sort of way, and the, uh, the the previous chief executive, I think, stewarded it fairly carefully, but there was no real image to it, mm. and people weren't sure what sort of future uh, it had. 
Um, but it had a very attractive yield and has a very attractive yield, which no doubt we'll talk about. And it seemed to me to to be an almost hedge you win, tells you can't lose situation in that there was a dividend yield and still is of around 10%. And also it's fairly frequently talked about and indeed was talked about in the in the newspapers this week as a possible takeover candidate. And so, to my mind, something that uh, has the, the size and stature of M&G and the dividend yield uh, and the possibility of a takeover really made it a very interesting situation. Uh, and so I went along to the AGM this year to really try and get a feel of the company, because I hadn't had a feel of it, and to, to get a feel also of the new chief executive, Andrea Rossi, uh, and the chairman, the relatively new chairman as well, and hopefully to talk to one or two members of the board and indeed one or two of the shareholders. And I certainly wasn't disappointed. I'm a great believer in AGM attendance, although I don't attend as many as I did these days, but MNG was important, and MNG had a, um, uh, a hybrid AGM, which is what I favour these days, so the physical attendance uh, and also by Zoom as well. Sure. Uh, in digital form, and, and that's one of the reasons why I was totally opposed to watching Norman's M&S uh, attempt to to make the AGM all uh, all digital and exclude people, which I thought was totally wrong. Anyway, uh, during the course of the of the the meeting, Andrea Rossi uh, talked very optimistically about um, the the future of M&G, uh, and afterwards I was able to talk to to him and to the the chairman, and I got the feeling of quiet optimism uh, and a feeling also that the, the dividend was secure. Uh, and I also met a significant investor called Kingdom Holdings, which is a Saudi group who own about 6%, and they, they were, they'd been building up their stake. Uh, and then I met one or two of the other directors as well. Uh, and um, overall, I came away feeling, you know, th this is really a company with a considerable future, mm. very little downside. And I like the, the dividend yield. Um, and it's a four billion plus capitalization, ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I went away and significantly increased my holding in M&G. And in fact, I sold my uh, most of my Aviva shares and bought more M&G. Interesting. So just to 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 jump back to the start, were you uh, an M&G holder because of the the approved spin out? Did you did you just hang on to your shares? No, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I I came in, I suppose, about uh, maybe eighteen months ago, something like that. Okay. Um, but as a result of attending the AGM uh, and forming a very positive view, I significantly increased my stake, and it's probably now my second largest holding, second to Treat. Yeah. So you've got quite modest optimism at the board level your your confidence we do also have the the fact you alluded to is that there's there's i suppose been this perpetual market doubt a little bit about mng the just to sort of really focus on the 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 blocks of the business here you know this is like all life insurers this business with some quite complex moving parts i suppose so you have the the wealth division that's trying to grow through the pre fund franchise this fixed income focused asset manager which faces some big headwinds but you know andrea rossi's talked about it being you know, potentially a european powerhouse then you've got a, this kind of pension arm which is you know there's there's definite growth there though it's quite capital intensive and then the closed book heritage life insurance business that's in runoff i suppose you so you may have sort of three or four parts here does does that amount to you in your eyes as a, a growth business or is it kind of like Hold, hold a hold steady. Well, certainly, a Rossi, who I subsequently 
um, mm. had lunch with, believes that, that uh, it provides a, a, an almost unique platform to move forward. As a kind of cross-selling. Cross the cross-selling and the overall financial strength of the, uh, the group. And I think he believes, and I, and I go along with it, that it puts them in a unique position. And I think if you really put his, uh, his uh, previous experience and track record at AXA mm. uh, alongside the fundamentals of M&G, you have a very attractive combination. Uh, and I was probably, in my earlier comments, a shade um, underplaying uh, Ross's optimism and enthusiasm. Uh, he really does believe that he's going to build a very significant uh, global business and I think it's very much, you know, watch this space. And I, I was very pleased with the interim results that came through uh, a few days ago. Um, I would have been personally very happy with a maintained interim dividend, instead of which was put up 5%. So the yield is back now to around 10%, which, which for a company of that size and stature, frankly, is extraordinary. Mm, it's, it's unusual. I, I suppose the um, the dividend one is one headline that investors will, will look to when they whenever they open um, M&G's results. Um, there are a few other elements, though. I suppose in, in hitting those targets, what should investors be looking at um, from sort of the, the major headline metrics for more reassurance? You, you know, there's obviously the, the kind of capital solvency, sort of client flows statutory profits adjusted profits where what are the what are the moving parts that you are well i think fundamentally with that sort of business uh you, you know you want to see uh, a, a, a really good solvency ratio and right. i think it's around 200 percent um which uh you know i think is is uh so twice the capital the is, regulatory capital it, need. exactly is 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 excellent an optimistic vein through the through the the group comments mm. the five percent increase in the interim dividend and the talk also of um, not just regarding the the annuity side as as effectively sort of closed end and runoff, right. but actually um, uh, indicating plans to really take in new business yeah. in that area uh, as well. And I think also Rossi believes with his international connections that he can bring in uh, significant new investment management mandates uh, from from around the world. So. Uh, uh, you know, it all seems to me to to be pointing in one direction. Yeah, and you know, of course, so long as that dividend is is maintained, that's a happy picture for M and G investors. Obviously, you don't, you know, investors don't have to answer the 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 question of the disconnect around the rating. But what you know, to your eyes, are some of the explanations for why why the the market does seem a little bit nervous about. You know, because ten percent, a ten percent dividend yield tends to be Norm as a normally. Red flag. Normally, if you saw ten percent, warning lights would yeah. would flash. Yeah, but but um, first of all, I would say that in that whole sector, there are some very attractive yeah. yields. So uh, you can get, and I think these these yields are extraordinary. You can get an eight percent dividend yield on, on Legal and General. Uh, you can get similar on Naviva. Uh, you can get 9% on, on Phoenix mm -hmm. uh, and similarly with Chesnara as well, all of which I've got. Mm -hmm. uh, so the 10% in that context, in that sexual context, is not, is not exceptional. Okay. You know, if you saw all the rest of the market and that sector on yields of 3 and 4% uh, and you saw M&G on 10%, you, you might think, well, something's wrong. So I think relative to its sector, it's not standing out, as it were, uh, but I think in terms of 
the opportunities for further growth and uh, from a potential takeover point of view, you know, if it doesn't actually deliver the growth and therefore mm. remains a bit of a stranded whale, uh, then I suspect consolidation and predators may well appear. Yeah. So um, on that point and who might, you know, potentially harpoon this this uh, slightly stranded whale there, you know, the, the, the bid talk that you, you refer to, I think there were rumours in late February that, it might be a takeover target. Then there was a story that Macquarie, the Macquarie, the, Macquarie was certainly mentioned. Whether they could do it alone, I think there was right. some talk of, of uh, you know, maybe Macquarie, you know, w- working together with uh, who knows who, mm. or maybe I don't know Phoenix or or, or what have you. Uh, but of course, you know, there are some very substantial fund managers in the U.S. and Europe as well, uh, who who uh, if they really wanted to build up in the U.K. Uh, would see, I, I would suggest, you know, MG as a very, very attractive and significantly sized target and platform to go for. Uh, so, uh, you know, it all, it all to me, ticks all the boxes. Yeah, and I suppose that we should state as well, the company said that it can, it can go it alone. I mean, maybe sort of broadening this out to a bit more of your, you know, your uh, longer investing track record. I think you said, you told me that before that you've seen in your portfolio something like 60, 60 plus takeover situations in a in in your career as an investor that you've you've benefited from. When when talk about bid activity surfaces in a, in a holding, do you normally see that as a as a positive, or is it potentially points to nerves around strategy or how investors see it, or is it a good thing with a, a you know a kind of nice underpinning for the share price? Yeah, I, I I see it as the latter. Right. Uh, I see it as a, a an undervalued opportunity. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, I think the onus is on Andrea Rossi and the team to move it forward, to develop a premium rating for it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, clearly if they don't, then then there is that uh, obvious uh, vulnerability. Yeah. So uh, M&G being a, a big income holding of yours, it brings us sort of neatly to the, the broader investing theme that I, I wanted to talk about with you this month, which is, is dividends. I think it's fair to say that, the, you know, distributions from companies is you know really key to your investing outlook why are you such a fan john a fan of dividends yeah um for a for a whole mix of reasons you know obviously um you know in pure cash terms they're nice to have mm-hmm. uh and in my um isa and uh, the precursor to that um, uh, the peps uh that i had from from 87 i think when they when peps first started um, the reinvestment of dividends and the compounding has played a significant part in the overall growth. I've never attempted to work it out mathematically, mm. but it's been significant. Uh, and there have been a whole range of studies done which, which indicate that a significant part of portfolio growth has come about through the reinvestment of, of dividends. So I've always looked for a dividend yield. When a dividend is declared by a company, it, in, in a sense, it's telling us three things. It, it's telling us or commenting on the results of the last year. It's taking a view as to uh, results for, for the next year, because obviously management of any sense, they don't want to cut the dividend, as it were, so they want to feel it in a position to at least maintain it. And thirdly, what it means is that the company actually has got the cash to pay the dividend, which is a, a great plus. And so the the um, you know the profits are, are real profits and are, are cash profits, or at least the, the, you know, the liquidity is there to pay the dividend. So, you know, those are important aspects. Um, then, of course, a dividend uh, provides a prop to a share price, uh, uh, you know, fairly, fairly obviously. 
um, the, the the how the dividend yield, uh, you know, clearly the the increase in attraction, and one hopes that you know share price moves up. I mean, if I just jobbing back to MG for example, I would suggest that, that MG, in my judgment, should be on a dividend yield of about six and a half percent, even seven percent, say, rather than ten percent. So I think that, that there is that significant capital appreciation that should be there, um, you know, almost before the, the, the company actually starts, hopefully, moving forward and, and growing profits. The other point on dividends, uh, Alex, is that uh, I, I've frequently focused my investment approach on buying into what I term proprietorial companies, where um, there is a big family stake uh, and there are a number of those that over the years have performed extremely well, and many uh, investors and listeners will will know of them. Firms like um, Halsteads and Nichols and Lathams and F.W. Thorpe. You know, the, these are sort of classic uh, Goodwins, classic family businesses. And the whole point about investing in that type of business is that the the, the word that I like is steward, stewardship. In other words, the generation running the business are conscious of the history of the business uh, and their inheritance, but obviously want to uh, move it forward, but move the business forward um, sensibly without taking um, absurd risks uh, and, and risking everything. And also, many of those companies are conscious of members of the family who've got big share stakes, but, but earn no salary from the company. They're not on the board, in other words. They've got no executive role. And therefore, the dividend is important to them in terms of maintaining their lifestyle. Mm. So there is, there is, in a sense, um, uh, an additional motivation for that type of company to, to pay dividends and, and hopefully pay an increasing rate of of dividends as well, almost as a trust, you know, in a, in a sense. Correct, yeah, correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's almost a, uh, an inheritance and the and the and the family, the ongoing family responsibility yeah. to look after the wider members and, of course, shareholders benefit as well. Yeah, just to play, I suppose, play devil's advocate, kick the tires of, of the theory. I mean, there, there's some of the, the companies that have been most successful in you know in in recent times. I'm, I'm particularly thinking on the other side of the pond where. Granted, the attitude towards dividends does differ a little from from UK equity income investors. You've had some enormously successful businesses which don't pay dividends at all. You know, the likes of Amazon, Google, Google's parent Alphabet, Berkshire Hathaway, two of those companies. Sure, the big American tech stock. Yeah, I mean, two of those companies, I suppose, with Berkshire and Amazon are, you could argue, are, you know, have been, have had a degree of family control. But the attitude or the investment um, philosophy with owning those stocks is is one of a sort of total return of portfolio uh, appreciation. Would you? I mean, would you ever consider investing in a company that didn't? Oh yes, I mean, I, I've 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 got uh, uh, you know a, a, a number of of companies where the dividend yield at the moment is is very low. Companies right. like Manalit, for example, and and Vionet, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, a company uh, which I like very much called Concurrent Technologies. Um, who, who, you know, passed their dividend um, during the, the, you know, the more difficult period with the mm-hmm. with, with the supply of components, mm-hmm. um, and and now coming back very very strongly indeed. So um, a, the dividends are not an absolute, but overall, you know, I do like them. And of course, the beauty about having a portfolio now 
with the, with the MNGs and the Avivas and the Legal and Generals and the Phoenixes, that, that such is the, is the the size of, of dividend income that they produce that one can afford in the portfolio to carry uh, a few um, low yielding or non yielding shares, as it were, but still overall producing the the income for reinvestment or for spend that that, that one wants. Yeah, Does, has your attitude to dividends changed over the years? And I'm, I'm you know, I, I suppose it's a, I suppose a very personal question about you know personal finances but the there is i suppose in the kind of capital or the accumulation stage of some investors lives there is not necessarily a need to take the dividend uh, as a as income but just let it be reinvested back into um investments has has your philosophy changed at all as you know I, perhaps your sort of need from dividends changed it's not um a change by and large um i've apart from a very uh, short period i've uh, pretty well reinvested the dividends, and I'm still, uh, and I'm still doing that. Mm. Uh, who knows in, in the future? You know, with things like expensive care homes. I mean, I'm in my 80s now, so uh, one has to think about that sort of thing, and possibly grand grandchildren's school fees and all that. You know, things can change a little. But um, uh, the answer really is that I haven't changed my fundamental uh, philosophy. Um, that that I've tried to build my portfolios, the ISO portfolio, particularly over the years, brick by brick, are on a conservative basis. Mm. Uh, and of course, the key to, to successful portfolio investment uh, is avoiding the losses. And so I've not been looking and chasing spectacular returns. And I certainly confess that I missed out on the, you know, on the American uh, growth in, in, the, in, you know, in the, those uh, big tech stocks. Um, but then, of course, you know, I, I really only focus on UK equities. Uh, it's, it's a market that I think I understand mm -hmm. and where I know the established companies well uh, and um, it, it endeavor to avoid mistakes. Now, we all make mistakes. Of course, I've made, made mistakes and will make, will make mistakes in the future. But, you know, what really one's honed one's approach o over the years and, and essentially it's conservative. Uh, and uh, at the present time, not only the high yielding stocks that we've talked about, but so many, so many of the others are, are um, uh, very undervalued, uh, significantly undervalued as compared with US stocks mm. and historically so uh, as well. And of course, you know, that's why we're seeing when we see takeovers coming in, we're seeing takeovers, takeover premiums of 30, 40 percent and upwards uh, on, on, uh, on existing levels. Yeah, I suppose just to unwind some of my devil's advocacy there, and uh, you know, just looking back at M and G, and interestingly, you know, since it listed in the, in the autumn of twenty nineteen, it was obviously some very very rocky markets to the at the beginning of its listing life. Um, but the top slicing, you know, in the total return sense, might not have worked had you needed the income from an M and G because its share price, you know, has, has been fairly volatile. And the dividend, I suppose, the dividend has been a lot more consistent than its share price, particularly in a bear market. That's something to think about. Um, just moving on, perhaps M and G is, I suppose, emblematic of a broader point around UK equities. Um, maybe that the, the the chair of the City of, of the London Investment Trust said earlier this week that UK equities, um, you know, offered the chance for investors to be paid to hold on. I don't know if that's, um, you know reassuring or damning with faint praise in a way but um it, it does bring us to another a topic i want to touch on um today john and that's on i suppose city or or the uk investment market resilience i'm sure you know it won't have escaped your attention that the main narrative around the uk stock market 
and the city currently is around managed or mismanaged decline. What what do you make of the the current landscape and 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 that narrative um, that we have? Well, um, a number of points, Alex. First of all, you know we, we've just we've just agreed present prices are very low historically, uh, and I think it's a very attractive point of entry for investors, particularly. Um, VAR and ISA or similar, where where there are t- you know there are tax free advantages. I just think that there are great opportunities, and to me, and it should be very depressing to government to appreciate that now, as I understand it, more young people uh, speculate, and I don't say invest, it's speculate in cryptocurrencies than than invest in traditional equities or or in traditional form, uh, and I think that's very worrying, and I think it it it's a, a huge indictment. Of the, of the lack of financial education uh, in this country from schools onwards. One of the areas of blame in my judgment uh, is, is the total failure, the total, near total failure of television to cover, which after all has been the, you know, the dominant media until very recently and certainly is the dominant media for, for those uh, you know, maybe slightly more mature people with, with surplus cash and similar to invest. Total failure of television to, to cover the stock market, investment opportunities. Uh, there's so many great British companies that one can invest in. Uh, and I think it's just an absolute tragedy that, that those opportunities are not brought into people's homes on uh, any sort of basis at all. Uh, and I think, it, you know, for, for me, it's been a tragedy in recent years when, when um, interest rates have been so low that you've had so many thousands of people with, with cash in the bank I know a lot of people are struggling at the moment. Of course they are, but they're also quite a lot with savings. Uh, and uh, so for years, they've had money in the bank, earning next to nothing until interest rates started to rise very recently. Um, and yet they, you know, they could have invested in, in solid UK companies uh, earning you know, a, a, an attractive, positive return. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, why have they failed? I think also that, that sadly there is a mystique uh, about uh, stock market investment. Uh, and that's why so many people feel that they need to invest and should invest if they're going to invest through funds rather than take the decisions themselves. I've always tried to encourage, I've, I like to think I've been an evangelist for the private investor, trying to encourage people to take more decisions themselves. And it's not rocket science. I mean, you need you only need, apart from obviously some money, you only need two things in my judgment to be a successful yeah. investor. Common sense and patience. Those are the only two, common sense and patience. Uh, and it's patience probably the most important, and that's what most people lack. Successful investment is about getting into good companies and staying with them, being patient, uh, and letting, letting hopefully those businesses grow uh, in capital value and uh, in dividend-paying terms as well. Um, you don't make much money. You're not going to become wealthy jumping about from from this to that and taking small profits that you know the big money uh is made by getting into good things and staying with them long term yeah i mean i suppose you know one wonders if you know patience and television as as uh you know bedfellows <laughs> unnecessarily you know don't necessarily naturally go together but the, the you know the, the broader question i'd be interested in you know your thoughts on the you know, one reluctance maybe of television or whatever media it might be to, to um, medium it might be to properly communicate, you know, the value of, of person investing 
could it be de- could it be demand in a way? Is there a cultural aversion to risk taking in the UK? Do you think that we 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 put investing in the same bracket as well? I think as I think there's you know, gambling think, or well. Uh, well, I wouldn't say gambling. Although the interesting thing, of course, is is that there are any there are any number of advertisements allowed yep. uh, and carried by television companies for for you know for gambling, as it were. And yet, is there anything on you know on, in terms of uh, traditional investing or, or or you know on the great British companies that you can invest in? Uh, I think there is a, a degree of um, uh, risk aversion in, in the UK, but I mean we have so many excellent companies and. and you know, if you take a, for example, you know, there is a company like the program like Dragon's Den, for example, mm. you know, right. which, which is a very substantial viewing audience. People are interested in 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 business. In, in, yeah. in, in business. Um, people are interested in those who made a, a success of, uh, of businesses and, and, you know, have become uh, wealthy through through legitimate, uh, legitimate means. Uh, and I just think it's an absolute tragedy that that. Um, uh, so many of the great British companies that are out there that one can invest in um, aren't really brought to the attention uh, of your of, of your average person. Uh, and I think part of the problem is that that in in that society and 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 government in in terms of endeavouring to protect consumers and protect investors from uh, and of course they must be protected from gross abuse. Uh, I think the 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 uh, that we've become too um, you know too ris- too restrictive uh, and um, too much risk risk averse. I mean, our, our great uh, our great trading companies, you know, aren't aren't going to be built you know by the efforts of the of the Financial Conduct Authority or the Competition and Markets Authority, as it were. Um, uh, you know, we we we've got to liberate business, uh, and and I think also liberate the potential investment community. There is a great latent opportunity in this country for investors, both institutional and private, you know, to back a number of these smaller companies, uh, some of which will, I'm sure, grow to be very very sizable companies, mm. uh, and hopefully um, many will 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 grow and not be taken over. Um, I mean, you mentioned that that I've been on the receiving end, as I have of sort of sixty uh, takeovers or take privates during my investing years. Uh, most of them have obviously produced a you know a short term premium on existing prices, but uh, some of them, in my judgment, would have um, proved outstanding investments over the years had they been allowed to mm. continue. The ones that uh, got away. Uh, that's right, yeah. and I think that, uh, that that you know there has been a. a, a, a a little too much of sort of selling out too soon mm. uh, from some some very great UK companies. I mean, I'm sure these are you know big themes and big questions we'll be coming back to in the in the coming months. On the subject of, of smaller companies, just just to round off our um, our discussion and wrap up for this month, I just wanted to touch on a couple of companies which you, you did mention in your recent FT uh, money article. And actually, you, you touched on um, briefly earlier. I mean, one of them, concurrent technologies, which you um, uh, you're you have a holding in. Um, I mean, it's a, a firm, significant but, holding in. Right? Yeah, significant. Yeah, I, I, I mean, a firm. I have to say, I didn't know too much about um, until I looked them up. But I mean, in the I suppose in the sometimes desperate search for UK technology leading lights, this is fairly below the radar. But one you've been a fan of for a while. What's what's the business? The the the, the business basically is uh, computer boards of a very rugged and um, uh, you know, enduring, can't fail 
nature. Right. Um, so really very specialized uh, and um, always a very big uh, export into the US particularly. Um, and so historically they've been, I think, on a number of the major and latest American um, sort of space and missile programs. That has increased recently. And so their uh, export now is about 90% from, from the Colchester base, 90% uh, um, uh, globally. But America, of course, is a very big market indeed. Uh, and 70%, 73%, I think, of their overall revenues um, were, were defense-orientated. Mm. And I think that is likely to increase. Uh, of course, you, you mentioned under the, under the radar, uh, the problem is that when commentators in this country talk about defence and defence sector, mm. you know their, their knowledge pretty well stops at, at BA Systems and Kinetic, uh, and maybe Shemring or one or two others, as it were. They really aren't focused on a number of the smaller companies mm. that are there, that that actually are very focused indeed on 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 defence. So concurrent um, had a difficult period particularly with the um, semiconductor supply problems. The shortage of those. Yeah, a shortage, a shortage of those, which really um, you know, held them back significantly. So they had a, a, a difficult 12, 15 months uh, and, and passed the dividend. They uh, have now got a, well, he's been there two or three years, a new chief executive called, called Miles Adcock, who, who's got a big company background, and he's changed things dramatically in the, in the company brought in a lot of new people, increased the product lines. Um, they've just made an acquisition in the US, which of course is particularly important in terms of getting contracts for, uh, um, you know, from the US defense sector. Uh, and in my judgment, this is going to be, um, you know, really quite a significant company in two or three years time. So I'm very confident that it's on an upward trend. And similarly, you know, with, with a big defense uh, interest. Um, I've also written and visited Goodwins in the Potteries, mm -hmm. um, which is a, 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 an outstanding family-dominated firm with substantial focus on uh, on both nuclear decommissioning for the Sellafields of this world uh, and submarines, submarine construction, both UK and uh, and uh, American submarines. Very important supplier, and we've got um, uh, clearly increased um, expenditure going into the whole submarine world. We've got the AUKUS program coming up in a few years' time as well. So they're going to be very well placed, in my judgment, to grow profits. And it's an extremely well-regarded company. So uh, as examples, to me, both Concurrent and Goodwins, both of which are significant holdings in my portfolio, mm -hmm. you know, I'm very confident that they will, will deliver over the next few years. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that you know, never forget the smaller suppliers. I think it's always a you know an important watchword in investing. These um, these are both businesses. I suppose concurrence um, you know, headwinds they faced in in this you know with their supply chain, but also the, just the nature of of you know big contracting is I suppose one bare point potentially for these smaller businesses that you can become quite over reliant on um on 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 a few big um uh, clients. I, that said, I was I was looking at Goodwins and they, you know, the last 20, 20 years they've compounded at an average of twenty percent, including dividends, makes them kind of one of the real leaders in the entire market, um, and and also one of those family companies that you were. Um, They're an exceptional business. Um, I was slow to become aware of them. I should have invested years ago, but I visited them. Uh, I had a built up a small stake in it and visited them 
um, about three months ago. Mm. Probably one of the most uh, impressive companies that I've ever visited. Uh, and um, to find, I think in this case, four members of the family, um, all of whom are, you know, are absolutely driven to, to build a business and take it up to the next stage is something quite unique. You know, usually mm. in family businesses, you find you know, maybe with luck, they you know they've got one member of the family business who who really drives it, as it were, and then you know one or two gentlemen on the board. Mm. Um, but in this case, all the members of the family they were in different divisions and chairman. They all were absolutely committed to moving the business forward. So um, you know, those two are are uh, um, current favourites of mine, amongst others. Yeah, and good to focus on a, a Stoke headquartered company that isn't Bet Three Six Five as well. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's fair comment. <laughs> Lovely. I mean, loads to unpack for future episodes. Um, it'd be interesting to hear next time, John, what your, uh, your investor diary uh, over the coming one brings us to talk about. But I, th- I think on that note, we should probably wrap up. I-, I should say, if there are questions you'd like to ask John or subjects you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email me at alex.newman.ft.com and we'll do our best to address them. Um, but until then, all that's left for me to say is uh, thanks to you for listening. Thank you very much, John, for your thoughts. My pleasure. And thanks to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe, for all her work behind the soundboard. Until next time. 